It worked. Oh, I am proud of you, Agnes. Thank you for the flood of endorphins, by the way. Those nasty little stress hormones were getting in my way. What's happening? This was my plan all along. Finally, the endorphins I needed. I think I'll steer the ship for a while. No, wait, I'm in control. Not anymore. Transfer complete. Hello and welcome to Subspace Transmissions, the podcast where two Trek fans step into the arena and tackle the best, worst, weirdest, wildest, and everything in between that Star Trek has to offer. I'm Cam Smith and joining me on the bridge. This is Tyler Orton singing for the ballroom. <laughs> and we're here this week to talk about the latest episode of Picard, Two of One, as well as a little bit later in the show, we'll talk about the release of the Star Trek motion picture Director's Edition in 4K, which you know spoilers is pretty incredible so we'll talk about that a bit later but first up picard now tyler i have a question for you yes sir you said last week that you really felt that you know the the show had jumped the tracks uh jumped the rails um, or jumped the rails okay um i i feel like this episode was the one for me where i was like was it uh, okay like, did you feel like you were reframing that opinion from last week, or did this just seem like kind of a, a natural progression of where you were last week? Uh, just a natural progression. I think, you know, uh, as with all things, Cam, you're you're maybe a little bit behind me, and, and that's why you've mm. uh, caught up. And uh, th- th- this is just atrocious writing uh, throughout. You can <laughs> tell that the writers came up with an idea for season two, which is what if we sent Picard and company to L.A. for an entire season? And they all patted themselves on the back, and then they worked backwards from there and tried to figure out what the story should be. Because it's very clear that it's padding, 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 padding. There's just no story here. Uh, you're stretching things out. It is just... I, I, I'm so, so frustrated, like, thinking that we only have a couple hours left with one Jean-Luc Picard. And then Patrick Stewart, he ain't coming back uh, when he's, you know, 95 to do this once again. And this is what we're spending time on. Uh, you know, like, I, I don't know. I, 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 I am so done with this season. But Cam, it's very obvious, especially with the setup at the end of this one, is that we're going to spend, a you know, a whole episode in Picard's brain or whatever. We're going to have, you know, the Borg Queen inhabit Girardi's body and go hog wild in L.A. Um, and then... After that, we'll we'll have episodes eight and nine, which I think that just puts us on pace for you know days two and three before they have to avert this po- apocalypse, and we're probably not going to get back into uh, the twenty fifth century until uh, the final episode, maybe in the final fifteen minutes of uh, th- this season, which to me is just like uh, completely, completely not where I thought we were going when this season kicked off. Do you remember that anecdote about um, Times Arrow? That, like, I guess certain people in the writing staff wanted to, like, stretch out Time's Arrow into, like, a chunk of the season. Oh, yeah, of course. I think that was a Ron Moore quote uh, from back in the day. This is what happens when you follow through on that sort of concept where you're just like, you know what? Boy, what if Picard went back to 2024? That could be pretty cool, right, guys? You know, what if we brought the whole cast? Okay. Two episodes? Hmm. What if we did, like, nine or ten? And it's like... Oh, you run out of invention. Like, there's nothing here that's happening that doesn't feel like wheel spinning. And I felt like, for me, this episode just got crazy. Where it was like, I mean... (sighs) There's a couple things going on in this episode that frustrate me. Number one is a lot of this just, like, throwing out crazy ideas because why not? The whole, like, Borg Queen Agnes Gerardi comedy duo. I'm like, I I don't even know who this Borg Queen is anymore. Um, this doesn't really make that much sense to me. And it also cuts away any like actual threat. And I think that's one thing. The Borg Queen is always genuinely scary. That just feels non-existent to me at this point. And then also, um, and I'm, I'm sure there's other examples of crazy we can talk about as we go forward. But the other thing this episode does a lot is fast-forward storytelling. We have this whole buildup of Picard, you know, needing to make contact with this, um, you know, ancestor of his. And I think in a better Trek story, they would have built an ongoing story about how he had 
an impact on this young woman at a very trying time. And here we have him posing as a security guard, having one conversation and her being like, you know what? I am good to go. Next we find out is a one tossed off line that may have been 80 yard that she's in quarantine and ready to go on the mission. And I'm like, are you serious? Like, this is a show about human connection. It's about connection, Tyler. Connection. People connect. Cam, Cam, (laughs) I think I know you from somewhere. Like, oh, wow. (laughs) You can sense your, uh, well, not even, what would you call your your descendants, you know, uh, from uh, hundreds of years in the future? That's quite the skill uh, to possess there on uh, Renee's parts. Uh, To be fair, to be fair, given the Soong lineage, for all we know, her father looked exactly like Patrick Stewart. (laughs) True. Okay, yeah, (laughs) that's a very good point. It also (laughs) explains why why, uh, Corey slash Soji slash Dodge slash Persephone looks nothing like uh, Soong. It it's, uh, just kind of explains that, you know. Uh, it came, you know, I, I don't think I ever told this story, but there's this time as a child that I, uh, I was rummaging through this old stuff and I found this shoebox hidden away in the attic and I found a picture of this young family and a, and a baby. And I looked closer and that, that baby, it was me. Who are these people? <laughs> I exclaimed. I don't remember seeing these people ever before, I exclaimed out loud. Why is this shoebox hidden in the attic? I exclaimed out loud. What are these adoption papers? I exclaimed out loud. Cam, uh, uh, of course that story's not true, but uh, nobody talks like this in real life. And and there are ways that you can convey this sort of exposition without having to make your character look like an idiot by saying their innermost thoughts out loud and this just exemplifies like the terrible writing like this is just bad writing that we, we've been subject to and it's becoming more and more like very very clear like the further we get into the season and they're just just running on gas at this point when she googled her father's name i burst out laughing <laughs> disgraced scientist as as it said in the headline <laughs> and guess what he lost his license what was it like um eight hours ago <laughs> it's like <laughs> Wow. Uh, very quick to jump the gun. And, and they didn't even give that uh, uh, reporter a byline. It said, by staff writer. I was like, okay, I can see why. But I just, I don't know. I can't, can't... Didn't they refer to him as like a monster or something in one or, of the stories? A, a, mad, a mad scientist. <laughs> That's what it was. Yeah, yeah. Can you imagine... I mean, this is only two years from now, Tyler. Could you imagine a newspaper that was referring to someone as a mad scientist? Because they lost their license? Yes. <laughs> Actually, you know what? Amid all this COVID anti-vaxxer stuff, maybe, maybe you mm. can, maybe you can. Um, sure, sure. Yeah, I, I know, but but yet again, we have Isa Briones, aka you know Soji, aka Dodge, now Corey, going through the exact same storyline as she went through in season one. I, I, maybe it's genius on the part of the writers. Maybe we're just too dumb to understand, you know, kind of how, uh, you know, history, maybe it doesn't repeat itself, but it rhymes and we just don't get that. But th- this also comes in a season where, you know, Girardi is fending off the alien influence uh, inside of her own mind. And it's exactly what she did last season, too. And I'm just like, who are, are they just rummaging through like the, the stuff that they threw in the garbage in season one and then they're picking it all up again? Like, this stuff angers me. And it also has Gerardi once again in the role of having secrets that she's hiding from all the other characters while everyone looks at her and goes, are you okay? Are you okay? And it's like, we just did this. Like, this is so lazy and it's... I mean, what she's doing is kind of the same thing that's going on with Picard and all his mother trauma. It's him staring off into space and having flashbacks while characters say, are you okay? What's going on? What are you thinking about right now? And it's like, you're stretching out things that are pointless. And with the Agnes one, it's just frustrating because I'm honestly like, getting uh, Alison Pill is kind of a coup for the show. Back in the day when they announced her, it was like, a oh, coup? wow. Like they're, like, what's, isn't that the word? Coup. A coup. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, that's it's, right. Spelled, it's spelled C-O-U-P-S, but the, the, P, the P is silent. It, 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 there's nothing involving chicken wire or anything like that, Cam. <laughs> as soon as I said it, I was like, that is not the right pronunciation of that you're word. You're wishing that I did not say anything. <laughs> no, no. I, it, I apologize. I apologize. That, it's funnier that you did because now I'm just picturing a chicken coop. But um, <laughs> yeah, like getting her on the show was like a real big deal. And you're like, okay. They aren't kind of going halfway. They're casting legit, talented people opposite Patrick Stewart, an actor who clearly has a lot of presence, and you have someone like that opposite him on the show. That's really exciting. 
And then look at what Allison Pill has been given. It's unbelievable. That, that dress, I know. Um, oh. <laughs> but I, I don't know. It's just, it's just so, so unfortunate. And speaking of which, Cam, you know me. Uh, there's nothing that makes me feel more uncomfortable than watching people sing in television and in movies. I just want to crawl out of my skin. It always comes off as so thirsty. I, I don't know. Is Allison Pill going to be the one singing Blue Skies at the end of the season? Um, it seems pointed that way. Okay, so I'm now I'm thinking we should do rankings of awkward singing moments in recent live-action Trek. So I'm thinking of that episode of Discovery where the computer started singing Stormy Weather, I believe. Um, we also had Isa Brionis singing Blue Skies in uh, Season uh, 1 Picard. Is there anything else? Anything we're missing from live-action? I, I cannot quite put my finger on it but i think there might be you know like uh but it's just funny because like the vic fontaine stuff it worked for me it never made me feel uncomfortable because it was kind of like a you could tell it's just kind of a professional dude doing his job you know that's the sort of stuff i can wrap my head around but you remember in killing game where we had to watch seven of nine sing and i was just kind of rolling my eyes at that sort of stuff and even like when um uh Ben Cisco was singing in Bada Bing Bada Bang. I, that made me feel just a little bit uncomfortable too. I'm just like, I just, I know I'm a weirdo. I, I know lots of people. Actually, you know what, Cam, uh, West Side Story. Uh, I, I thought that was a wonderful movie. It did not make me feel uncomfortable when I see people singing uh, and doing that sort of choreography because it's done very well. Uh, this was just so awkward. It was just totally made to just give Alison Pill some sort of inorganic showcase for her own uh what seems to be a great singing voice it, d it did seem as if that was her voice i don't know how much uh pro tools were involved there but uh i don't know g good on her i guess oh yeah she can sing and i'm like thinking okay the isobrionis blue skies i'm like that's fine it was a credit thing didn't really offend me too much um and the computer in stormy weather that was awkward but i think this one may have been the worst in terms of um Giving it a placement within an episode, it just felt so awkward. And, like, that's a distraction? Is to, like, turn off all the lights and have her give a song performance? And also, who's in control? Is this the Borg Queen's idea? Because, I mean, if that's the case, I demand in all future Star Trek stories that the Borg Queen be singing a lot. Well, we first met her in First Contact, where we had, you know, uh, Zephyrin Cocker. And I guess the first music from uh, this century she would have heard was was that uh, Ooby Dooby song, you know. So, uh, oh, and uh, Magic Carpet Ride by Steppenwolf as well. So I, I, I guess both. But, okay, I, I'm, not, I'm trying to follow, not as if there's any sort of logic placed in the stories that they're trying to tell. But the Borg Queen, I think she wasn't in control just then. She wanted to get the endorphin rush that Gerardi was going to get from performing from people. So somehow the endorphins would give the Borg Queen control. But I think she pointed her in that direction. Like you said, hey, why don't you like turn off all the lights and sing for the audience? And I'm, I'm just really bummed out that we did not have uh, the rest of the crew uh, dancing in the background as, as she serenaded the entire ballroom there. Did she even have a microphone? I, I don't believe so. No, no. <laughs> it's like, that's an impressive voice. <laughs> Especially considering, like, this is a gala packed with people all talking. I mean, her voice drowned out all of them. What would you be thinking if, Cam, you were at a gala and, you know, you're you're enjoying your canapes, and you, you, you know, uh, you're having your, your club soda, and uh, all of a sudden the lights turn dim, and one of the uh, rando guests that you've been seeing chit-chatting around is suddenly singing at the uh, the, the top of the, uh, the ballroom there. Like, I, wouldn't she just be rolling your eyes at that point? Well, I think I know what activity we're going to try to pull off in Star Trek Las Vegas this year. <laughs> okay, thank you. Who's doing the singing? <laughs> um, I guess we'll have to um, draw straws or just determine who has the better singing voice. Um, it, that may be a real tough contest between the two of us because I think we're both pretty uh, poor singers. <laughs> what, what's your song, Cam? What's your go-to? You know, oh, I, I'll God. go back to, I'll make um, it Star Trek related. Remember, we were in Seattle at the convention there, and you and I, we figured out the, the best karaoke songs is, kind of goes over people's heads. You want to pick short ones because you kind of forget how long you're up there singing. It's a long mm -hmm. time. So you and I went with uh, Alice Cooper's School's Out. Yeah, I tend to be best at that sort of thing. Anything where I can imitate the singer, I can get through it okay. Um, but do not give me anything with high notes. Like, forget it. 
I'm just disappointed that she didn't start singing Sabotage by the Beastie Boys to keep it all in the Star Trek family. That would have been exquisite. Do you remember who the singer of the song Shadows of the Night is? It's like some 80s like pop star, and I, I can't remember for the life of me. What? Uh, how does Shadows of the Night go? Oh, God. Like, hum it. I don't or, really... Like, hum the melody. I don't know the words, but it's like... Something to the... Oh, God. I can't... Hum I'm the just melody. Just hum it. the melody. I don't really know because this was a remix version, and so like it's all mangled okay, up can't. in my brain. <laughs> okay, I, I I can't help you there. Um, but uh, I got it. I, it's uh, it was Pat Benatar. Oh, okay, there you go. Um, but she's the uh, death is for children. Or no, wait, what what what's her big song there? Um, uh, <laughs> death is, you know. Um, my dad had a tape when we were growing up, but I, I can't say that I memorized it that closely. I know that Pat Benatar had many hits, though. <laughs> I, I, I have to Google it or else it's going to like, uh, uh. This is what Picard has sent us on, a spiral into Pat Benatar Googling. Yeah, um, I can't find a song. Oh, Hell is for Children. That's what it is. Oh, and also Love is a Battlefield. There we go. Okay. Um, Girardi should have picked Actually, I think Chirati should have gone with Love is a Battlefield. I think that would have been spectacular. Yeah, that would have been pretty good. And that's a song I'm more familiar with than Shadows of the Night. Okay, okay. Uh, <laughs> Cam, uh, where, where do you think the show is going from here? Do, do you think the rest of the season pretty much is going to be in the 21st century? Which, apparently, Rios just loves after being um, arrested by ICE a few hours ago. Uh, he was saying how much he hated the 21st century, but lo and behold, he has access access to matches, and now he loves the century. Yeah, I mean, I floated the idea of Rios staying behind, and obviously there's a lot of complications with that because of time travel mechanics, but I really feel like they're paving the way for that to be the case. Uh, yeah, uh, I, I I don't think that will happen, but we'll see. Uh, I, I, I wouldn't put it past the writers to do something stupid like that, so uh, go for it. Um, was there any point to Picard getting hit by the car other than to bring the Dr. Teresa, forgetting her last name, but Dr. Teresa back into the fold and have her uh, meet up with uh, Rios once again? I would say it was both that and to induce another um, dramatic situation that the next episode can spend basically an hour on, a la that episode of DS9 where they go inside the head of um, the Section 31 dude. Um, oh, right. Luther Sloan. Sloan. Yeah. Which, was, so, which is probably the weakest episode from that final chapter of Deep Space Nine. Yeah. And so I feel like that's essentially um, what we're setting up here. Um and another question, why is this episode like edited into jumbles to have all of these like flashbacks and flash forwards and all that sort of stuff? Like it's, I would say like, if you are doing that, it's because you realized your central story in the, um you know, in this gala thing is pretty dead in terms of dramatic tension or anything really going on. And so they're like cutting it to shreds to try to make it seem exciting. Well, my assumption, though, and I wrote this in my notes, is in like when you rely on this on media ray technique, it's a signal that the show is starting off way too slow, and you're going to have to rely on this for any sort of building tension. I really think that this was not in the script. I think this came around in editing because Cam, uh, let's take that first moment out of everything. Uh, you, you have your teaser where they're just hanging out in the ballroom. What's the next big like? moment of tension is it all going to be centered around whether or not rios can get into the ballroom because girardi is having trouble escaping from her handcuffs like some sort of houdini i guess so the way this episode started too it felt kind of jarring just like kicking off with the gala i'm like oh yeah that's right they were i guess going in at this point it, it just felt like you know i referred to these uh episodes as chunks in the last podcast episode we did and I mean, this 33 minute and 28 second uh, chunk of Picard felt rather um, disorienting as a half hour of television. Was that really how long this episode was? Yeah, it was uh, 38 something when it started, but I actually subtracted the time for credits, um, the previously on and the end credits. And it came out to 33 minutes and 28 seconds. Yeah, that's horrifying. Cam, what if nobody had ever seen an episode of Star Trek ever before? What reason would they have to uh, watch uh, the next episode after, or explore any other episode after just being plopped down into this one? Um, and in a show called Star Trek. 
<laughs> Maybe a fascination in seeing what weird things could happen next week? Okay, I don't know. Like, I think the answer is no. I think if you are uh, watching uh, this just out of the blue, uh, it's not going to be all that appealing for you to continue on with the franchise. You know, it's just like, um, there, there's, I guess, a kind of, like, I, I'm trying to decide, is there beginning, middle, end to this episode? Like, not really. The beginning of this episode took place at the end of the previous episode. And this episode ends with them setting up the next episode with like, I have to go into Picard's brain, you know, and I'm just like, oh God, you know, and because I think, I think we finished up with the ballroom stuff. Uh, I think there's still maybe like eight or nine minutes left in the show, you know, I'm just like, I don't know what it's doing. And it has all these like really awkward commercial break insertions throughout episodes that is really weird. Do you recall that being like this in season one? Uh, off, off the top of my head, I, I, I assumed it was like that. That's what they've been doing with Discovery since it premiered in, in 2017. And so I figured that they were doing that in uh, Picard as well. This one, like this season, especially like the last few episodes, feel incredibly jarring when I'm watching the show. Yeah. And I mean, maybe they just hid the seams a little better in some of those past seasons. This one, I'm like, this is giving me whiplash the way they're like cutting between like moments. <laughs> you mean uh, like Morbius? <laughs> I mean, I feel like maybe the editors went to the same workshop as the uh, Morbius filmmakers. Uh, and for listeners, yes, Cam and I, we indeed went and watched Morbius this past week. And we got our Jared Leto fill for the year, so there's that. Although I guess I'm still watching him on the uh, HBO series We Crashed, which, uh, I don't know, it, it's only so-so. Right, okay. Um, now, I'd mentioned earlier, like, the fast-forward storytelling. Is that grading on you? Uh, by fast forward storytelling, what do you mean? It's just like racing through a character interaction or something just to get to a moment. Like I use the example of Picard and his ancestor, but that's just one example. It's like these insta relationships formed by one conversation. I I really feel as if the writers are approaching this sort of stuff as like, oh yeah, we're showing our work, you know, very much like you have to do in math class. You can't just look at a math problem write the answer down and get full marks for it. You have to show your work as if you did the work to get to where the end point is. And I feel like to them, this sort of stuff is just kind of a chore. Like, okay, yeah, let's just say, have Renee say, look, you've really lifted my spirits, old man. I've never met before, but I feel like I know you. And why are you a security guard who is 80 years old and happen to have an English accent here? And uh, yeah, that's all weird. Um, I don't know. Like now I guess she's really feeling inspired to go into space just because of that one talk and this is clearly a woman who has like deep-seated depression issues but as long as picard can give her a little pep talk she's down yeah and i would have thought nasa would have better psychological testing than this like as you said like she comes across as being a very troubled character and that's something i think the show should be treating a little more seriously than just kind of hand-waving things away as if like oh this can be resolved with one speech from picard and I, I don't, like, this is a show set, theoretically, in a somewhat real reality-based 2024, and it doesn't feel like the real world at all. I think it has something to do with episodes that Jonathan Frakes directs, because recall in season three of Discovery, the uh, Frakes episode, in which all that uh, one, uh, oh, who does Emily, uh, or all that, uh, Detmer had to do to relieve herself of PTSD was get into a really stressful uh, situation piloting books starship and that's all it took and she was cured after that and just like just these it's so weird in that the writers from these live action series they're like yes we tackle the really important issues in the most surface level way possible and then they pat themselves on the back like it's so obvious how self-satisfied the writers are on on both these shows, which I just don't understand, like kind of the, uh, I, I just the satisfaction that they seem to get from their own writing where I don't know, I, I'm looking at the animated shows and like, uh, I, the animated shows do not come off as pretentious whatsoever. And I think that's why they, they capture the Star Trek spirit way better than um, these live action shows do. And they seem to actually care about character dynamics and proper growth within, you know, a serialized story. When I think of like Star Trek Prodigy, and I mean, even like Dr. Jillian Taylor in, um, you know, Star Trek IV, The Voyage Home, that is basically 
kind of just like an 80s fairy tale romantic comedy kind of set up with her and Kirk. And obviously she, you know, isn't that interested in him at the end, but that's kind of the way it's framed within the movie. And you look at like, they put work into that where they're going out to dinner, they're having conversations. You get the sense of kind of a building relationship between her and the other characters. And I I don't know, that's a two hour movie. Tyler, this is a 10 hour movie and they can't be bothered even setting up Adam Soong in an interesting way before he's trying to run people down on the street. <laughs> well, you know what? Maybe we were wrong, Cam. Maybe he really is a mad scientist. <laughs> That's true. If he's trying to run people down on the street after, like, one visit from Q, yeah. <laughs> that's, uh, that's something. He drives as fast as the writers try to drive past uh, plot points every single episode. And that's the problem. So I, I don't really feel as if I am sitting with the characters in compelling ways. Now, you can make the argument like, well, they're, they're doing that with Gerardi and the Borg Queen. But I, th- I think the key word that I used there were, was interesting. And I just, uh, they're going like, I don't know, like the uh, Dr. Teresa and Rios scene at the end. Uh, I was just like, okay. Was anything interesting about that exchange? Like, uh, not really. All I can remember is him talking about the sun or something. I don't know. It it, it just kind of like blew through my head because there was nothing compelling about it. There was a little something interesting where he talked about, don't worry, we're the good guys. And she said something like, the good guys would never say that. But ultimately, we know they're the good guys. So that doesn't make it interesting. It would be more interesting if it was like a more morally gray character where he'd be like, yeah, you know what? That does kind of say something about the character, but that's not the case. Yeah. Okay, uh, Cam, uh, maybe we can talk about like more exciting Picard news, but I don't know, based on the pedigree of the writers uh, going into season three, but uh, we did find out on First Contact Day that uh, the cast of TNG, all of them, except for Wesley and uh, Yar, uh, sorry, hmm. Denise Crosby and Will Wheaton, uh, will be returning uh, together on screen in season three. It, it, it was kind of weird how they're marketing it in that it listed all of the actors' names in this video of Patrick Stewart writing a letter, and you hear the voiceover of all of these uh, main characters from The Next Generation, and, and then you have their names scroll down, and it says, and they will be joining the cast in season three. And do you mean, I think they're trying to play fast and loose with what that means, because by joining the cast, I don't think we're going to see all of their names in the main credits in any given episode. There might be you know, a special guest in this episode or a special guest in that episode. Remember, um, Marina Sirtis did not even get like a special guest credit um, when she was in Nepenthe last season. So I don't know. It's, it, 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 I, I'm looking forward to seeing everybody back again for the first time since uh, Star Trek Nemesis, but I don't have much confidence it will be done very well based on what we've seen so far from Picard, uh, the series. Do you think that it was always the intention to have this cast back for the final season when they were doing season one? I figured they wanted... I, I You, you kind of knew that they wanted to have folks back, and but I'll say this, I, I don't think they necessarily knew that there were going to be three seasons when they embarked on season one. I, I think they had uh, said, uh, and it was documented quite well, that the intention was like, yeah, let's do some sort of multi-season series. So I would assume that they'd eventually want to touch upon all of those main characters at some point as, as the series went on. I just wonder if, I don't know, like there's something to me that is a little um, dubious about the setup of season one. And like, I, I think I agree with you in the sense of like, you have uh, Riker and Troy showing up in season one. And I think, like, they use them really well. And I could totally believe they're like, you know what? We want to honor these characters and bring them back in, you know, significant roles throughout. The way, you know, Data's paid off as well in season one. Um, But when I'm watching, like, the promo for this and they're, like, showing Picard pulling out his TNG uniform and I'm seeing all the names, I'm like, it feels like, I don't know, if it's, like, kind of that last-ditch attempt to, like, get this show back in people's, like, public consciousness, getting the buzz and getting that cast back to essentially promise what people probably wanted in season one. Well, it's it's cynical marketing. And with regards to that promise, like, I, I know what you're talking about. It's like, so far, Picard has not delivered the series that we would have wanted. And I'm not saying I needed a uh, TNG redux or anything like that. That's unnecessary. I am saying that I, I wish that they had taken you know one Jean-Luc Picard into far more interesting situations on his journey. Now he just seems like um, kind of a real 
old man that who's with very little confidence who is now defined by fear and the lack of ability to love and i'm like is it uh-huh, really the car that we knew all along like I, i'm wondering like by the time we we get to the end of season three do, do you think we're going to get more of the assertive confident commander that we knew for you know so many years before you know it, does he simply need his old family surrounding him for him to return to form again like i i, I don't know but like this does not seem, uh, and it literally is not the same character. It's Gollum Picard, but this just does not seem the, to be the same character that we left off with um, back in the film era, and especially the TV era. And I know Patrick Stewart would be like, well, I wouldn't want to play kind of the same notes again. I'm just like, well, does it interest him to play Picard like this buffoon, which is what we seem to get every episode? I, I mean, the thing with Picard is this is not a character where... <laughs> strange transitions is unusual because you look at the way he is in the films as well. It doesn't really feel like the character on the show. So this has happened before, but I feel like with this show, it's almost like they don't know how to make him a lead of a show. He's the lead because it's Patrick Stewart and it's Jean-Luc Picard, but it doesn't feel like they know how to make him an interesting lead of a show on this particular show. And I, I just don't know what they're doing with this character. It doesn't feel like it makes sense to have him kind of as, you know, I don't know, leading his people without fear in season three. But I also wonder, are we going to have some sort of time jump the way we did in season one to two? Like, are things going to be in a different state? It's kind of like, as you know, the show likes to do is make things happen without doing the work. We're going to still be in L.A. in season three, Cam. (laughs) And we're only going to deal with that cast, but like their ancestors and they all look exactly the same. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, I like, I don't know. It's just like, it frustrates me because Patrick Stewart, like I get what he wants. It's like, he let's play this character from the beats that I did not get to explore on the television series. Let's look at the more vulnerable side of this character. But that did not necessarily make him a very compelling character character that's not the reason why we felt so drawn to picard back in the day um i'll, I'll throw this at you I'm, off the top of my head i'm thinking about picard hell yeah moments and you know you have all good things where you know at the very end at the climax he's just going bounce balancing back and forth through different times and he's very very sure of what to do with the deflector dish and he's just calling the shots so assertively so confidently and I don't know, I, I, what's been like a similar sort of hell yeah Picard moments, uh, you know, one and a half seasons in at this point? Um, boy, I am racking my brain as to what they've really given him. I mean, in many ways, the hell yeah Picard moments on TNG are like when he gives like a really profound speech. And you're the drumhead, like, oh, man. right? Yeah, like, sure. Yeah. yeah, there's many examples, but drumhead is a great one. And I guess like in maybe the minds of the writers of Picard, like season one at the end when he gives the speech to the androids, like that was supposed to be that kind of moment. But he still I seemed mean, doddering though. That, that exactly. Like it was a bit of a stretch, but in season two, I don't think there's anything. Cause it seems like most of what he does is sit down with other characters and talk about the plot. He doesn't actually do anything interesting. And it made me very nervous when he I'm got, seeing this. He teaser. got bitch slapped by <laughs> Q in the second episode. <laughs> That's true. He got Will Smithed by Q in the second episode. Yeah, that's true. And when it comes to like season three, what made me nervous too is like it has that one shot of him and um, Riker like standing there holding phasers. And it's like, this is what they think everyone wants. They want to see these two characters standing there holding, you know, phasers. And it's like, well, that wasn't really what made them cool on the show. Yeah, and this this show and also Discovery and hopefully not Strange New Worlds, but we'll see, really just like to go to action moments as like, kind of like, well, we don't have like a interesting dramatic resolution, so let's just have like an action scene. And I'm really worried they're going to do basically an Indiana Jones in the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, where it's like, okay, Picard's old, we're going to acknowledge that, but we're not really going to, we're just going to put him in action scenes because like, it'll have the fans excited. Well, the deal was, like, back in the day, they, they could not afford such action scenes that we're getting. You know, that, that amazing car chase, Cam, or uh, Rios's big uh, jailbreak from the prison ice van or whatever, or uh, bus, you know. Um, 
So back in the day, they had to rely on people talking to each other and building tension through conversation and conflicting goals. And here it's just, um, just kind of brute forcing your way through situations. It's not compelling and it just comes off as so inorganic when it happens. It does. And I think like, as you know, as someone who can appreciate like a really well done action sequence, they can be intense and this show doesn't do them very well. So that's a real problem if you want to base a lot of your big moments on action because it's just you don't have very strong action direction going on on this show. So that doesn't help. I had another question for you, Tyler. Yeah. Why is Jerry Ryan on this show? Well, has she done anything interesting with the Borg Queen? Or has uh, Picard done any, anything interesting with the Borg Queen? But uh, no. And, you know, I Rafi was like, hey, look at her. She is at ease because she doesn't have Borg implants. Is that what her story is going to be by the time we get to the end of this season? It's like, life is better without Borg implants? Like, okay. Like, she it doesn't... seem to be. Yeah, but remember, like, we discussed last week kind of the difference between story and plot. And it seems as if uh, a lot of these characters are given, like, uh, story points to hit, but not a lot of... Uh, or I should say plot points to hit, but not a lot of stories, like not journeys. At least Girardi is going through some sort of journey. It appears that uh, soon uh, both Adam and Corey are going through some sort of journeys, as is Q. And I guess Picard with his interactions with uh, Renee. But um, the peripheral characters like uh, Rios and Rafi and Seven, it's very clear that they're just trying to find things for them to do because they have no journeys for them to go on. It just... Let's get them involved with, at the exposition and the uh, action sequences or uh, furthering the plot rather than the story. You sort of have these low-key stories for Rios and obviously the clinic doctor and Rafi with, you know, being torn up over the death of Elnor. But Seven has nothing. Like, it's a case where I go, like, why is this character here? It's like they wrote her into that finale of season one, kind of joining the crew and then it was like, oh, we don't really have anything interesting for her. That's why I really do wonder if they just like split this character away from Picard and we've got a seven spinoff maybe taking the place of Picard when it goes off the air, you know, after its next season. Yeah, but the uh, <laughs> this story is all just going to be centered on her trying to get rid of her Borg implants. And she'll be like, oh, you know what? Bejazel is right the entire time. Well, do you think they would do just like a Raffi and seven spinoff? Yeah, and look, I'd watch that. I don't think those two characters have been given very good material, but I think that those are characters that have proven themselves to be compelling when given moments in the past, you know. Um, but I also just have to roll my eyes at things where, like, Raffi takes a glance at the bottle of whiskey behind the bar in the ballroom, and then she just longingly orders, you know, her club soda. And it's like, okay, so you're reminding us uh, very subtly of, of some of the uh, internal conflict and, and uh, tension within the character, but you're not really doing anything interesting with that at all. And uh, there's time to do that. Like, this is a 33-minute episode. There's plenty of time for Raffi to have a talk with Rios about that. Or all these, like, character dynamics we talk about that feel stripped out of the show you would be able to justify it not from a quality perspective but maybe from a, like a you know looking at it from the point of view of a showrunner if this was an action based show where they were butting up against you know a 44 minute cutoff point or whatever for broadcast tv but like this is a 33 minute um episode that may be more action based but you have plenty of time to work in dialogue and character dynamics which would only enhance what could be a, you know an action tv show well, it just shows a lack of confidence on the part of the writers thinking that unless we keep the plot moving, 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 we're going to lose the attention of uh, viewers. And uh, they don't seem confident enough to really sit with the characters, you know, for long periods the way that you would on, on the old Star Trek series from like uh, the 90s and all that. And I'm just kind of like, or, you know, going back to the 60s too, you know, I'm just kind of like, I don't know. It's like... This sort of stuff, I don't know, just even watching the aesthetics of this episode, you know, just with Girardi on the keyboard, uh, you know, trying to get Rios in okay to the ballroom. I'm just like, 
it kind of felt like it was one of those kind of procedurals, you know, like from the late 2000s or early 2010s, you know, like CSI Cyber or something like that. And I'm just like, it's just, it's, it's not quality television uh, at all, but they're trying to wedge this aesthetic and this sort of writing into the Star Trek universe. And I'm just like, it does not work for the Star Trek universe. No, it really doesn't. And I had another question for you about the, um, you know, Talon, the supervisor, who is there to, you know, look over um, Rene Picard. Who was Gary Seven looking after? Uh, Terry Gar. <laughs> I mean, I guess so. The name it sounds like, like Picard. Uh, Terry Picard. <laughs> Terry Picard. <laughs> It seems like this weird, like, retcon of, like, they exist to look after us. But it's like, is half the population supervisors looking yeah. after each individual? Is it only special people? What defines who's special? Oh, exactly. I just have, I have so many questions about what supervisors actually do. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I, I don't think they've done anything particularly interesting uh, with Talon. Unless, are we to believe, I don't know, and I really hope this is not the case, but are... Lars and Talon, in fact, the same individuals in that Talon, hundreds of years from now, eventually just adopts the name. Lars gets some pointy ears, joins the Jat Vash, and she's now tasked with watching over Picard after her assumed husband croaked somehow. Like, I don't, I don't know if that's where they're going, but it's very bizarre that they look identical and uh, Picard just doesn't really want to uh, comment on that too much. Tyler, that would be ridiculous if that was the case. So that's going to happen then, right? <laughs> I would say it's... I'd be leaning more and more likely because there was even kind of like a bit of romantic sparks in this episode between the two. And I say that more as in intended romantic sparks versus actually something that I actually was, you know, compelled by. But um, it seems like it's kind of leaning into that. So I would consider that to be possible and i will say i mean you know to be nice i think actually orla brady was pretty good in this episode um she's someone who i think is pretty strong actress and someone i kind of wish they'd i don't know done something more interesting with in season one because she's clearly up to the task well i mean that's what the fans are all begging for in season one is like bring back the romulan helpers who you know really really jumped off screen in those first three episodes and you know the the series did kind of take a nosedive and i think people were clinging to everything or to anything, you know, that kind of uh, jumped out to them, um, at least in season one. Yeah. I will be uh, really in interested to see with that announcement of those TNG cast members, how many of the current Picard cast kind of get shuffled off to essentially just kind of hand the show over to ongoing, you know, turns from the TNG cast. I think the TNG cast might be given much less screen time than you might be thinking right now. I, I could totally, I th I think like what you're saying is very, very possible, even probable that that'll be the case. But I don't know, like, do the writers feel like they're inspired with these characters? <laughs> like, I feel like it may be uh, more compelling to them to kind of drop some of them and at least pick one or two TNG people to make ongoing, you know, characters they're so inspired they keep giving allison pill and isa brionis the same character beats to do every season here's a question which tng cast member gets to perform a song number in season three well it's got to be gates mcfadden because she has the tap dancing skills already i'm down for it i'm down for it <laughs> okay she'll be tap dancing on the board queen's grave by the end of it right <laughs> Is this even the Borg Queen at this point? I don't know who this character Cam, is. Cam, I've got a new theory, man. And it's totally right, man. The Borg Queen is Renee Picard, man. And I know it, man. All the signs are there, man. I figured it out, man. That Europa mission really goes wrong. And actually, just I think lastly, before we maybe move on to the motion picture, a lot of this season is about this threat that has been created by Q. Wouldn't it have made sense to work him into this episode in some way? Wasn't his name was in like uh, the opening credits? Like it said, special guest star John Delancey, and, and I I think the only reason why is because it was Adam Sung was having angry flashbacks to his daughter's suffering, and it included mm -hmm. like a shot of uh, John Delancey in there. I was just like, oh man, the guy gets paid. Uh, good on him. It's just so weird to build this season around an event caused by Q and to have Q contributing so little but but okay here's a question is it an event caused by q 
Like, that's what it seems, but we don't know what's going on. Like, that's No, the that's problem. very true. I do think they'll pull out the rug from the audience and that Q was actually playing either a positive role in trying to fix things or some sort of, like, I don't know, like, just outsider role just that is sort of helping Picard along in some way. Like, I, I don't think when we get to, you know, episode 10 or 9 or whenever they want to reveal it, that this was all an evil plot by Q. Yeah, but we saw it last season. Like, obscuring the motivations of the characters you're following, it doesn't do anything good for the uh, the story that you're trying to tell. It, it it harms it. Yeah, because even the Borg Queen, like, what does she want to do? She wants to turn Renee Picard into the next Borg Queen, man. <laughs> Exactly. Like, I, I don't know. Like, I feel like when I get to the end of this episode and the board Queen's like, I'm taking over, Agnes, and like hitting the, hitting the streets, that I should have a sense as to what the board Queen might want to do. And I'm like, I, I don't know. I have absolutely no idea what this character would want to do. She's going to go to a Steppenwolf concert. You know what? I would be down for that at this point. Okay. Uh, Cam, let's okay. jump over to Star Trek, the motion picture. The director's cut on 4K is available on Paramount Plus as of now. Uh, I, I, I sat down and watched it last night. Uh, absolutely enthralled with how it looked visually. Uh, it, it's never looked more stunning. Uh, even stuff that I made fun of in the past, you know, like that wormhole action sequence. I've never been more sucked into just moments like that. Um, this, okay. I'll ask you this about the, the the director's cut, you know, the, the edit that we got here. I think one of the big problems that we had with the original version is everything that takes place when Ilya the probe uh, returns and it turns into the probe and Decker show. I think that's when uh, it really starts to drag. That wasn't exactly fixed here, but just in terms of uh, cinema, and visuals, I, I think this is probably the best-looking uh, Star Trek has ever been, despite some of the uh, this 1970s dress choices that uh, we, we saw the uh, characters engage in. But those uniforms look amazing in 4K, right? <laughs> oh, well, uh, how many times did uh, Kirk uh, do like a wardrobe swap throughout the course of this movie? Quite a few, quite a few, and they always look amazing. Um, but I had previously bought the 4K set they put out with the first four original series movies and i did watch motion picture uh, i think the day i bought that set um and i will say like i thought when they were doing the director's edition it would be basically them remastering and pasting in the you know sequences that were from the director's edition into the pre-existing 4k upgrade i don't think that's the case this looks a lot better to me than the 4k upgrade they did on the theatrical cut like that one had a lot of green hmm. and when i was watching this i was going oh my god like this whole movie looks incredibly smooth there's really like very few moments that have that kind of like ooh, this part's aged a bit like there's a split diopter shot at one point in the movie where it's a close-up of kirk and then a background shot of a very bored looking crew member where it looks kind of wacky like kirk's existing in some sort of like jelly environment but beyond that this movie looked absolutely incredible in a way that I don't think the previous 4K quite presented as well. Well, I, I did not catch that uh, previous version, so I'm glad that I was able to wait for this. And uh, look, I, I know a lot of people, their, their patience might grow thin with uh, the endless anti-chamber sequences, but this is kind of a, a, a sci-fi movie of its era that is kind of eschewing what the trend was back then after Star Wars had just come out and they wanted all these kind of Star Wars ripoffs. And I don't know, this is more in the vein of 2001, A Space Odyssey. And I'm, I'm glad that uh, director Robert Wise was able to do that. It's just, it's incredible that they got this off the ground. Um, that said, you know, uh, it comes at the cost of kind of the, the, the whimsy that you get in the original series. It, it just doesn't quite exist there. There's some uh, good character moments. Uh, Spock is uh, quite the jerk throughout this one but he's still kind of fun <laughs> to follow i've never seen vulcan look more spectacular in star trek ever uh, even san francisco I, I i wrote in my notes yowzas when we saw the exterior of starfleet headquarters you know this is one even if it's not your favorite movie i think it's worth it for all fans to look at just for the visuals alone 
I think there's like bits of humor they work in. There's some really funny Kirk moments like the bones. There's a thing out there. <laughs> like there's little <laughs> lines or like, will you just sit down to Spock? You know, there's like moments here or there. But you're right. Like it is a movie very much inspired, as you said, 2001, but also stuff like Close Encounters, I know was a big influence. But I think of movies like Silent Running as well, or maybe even a little bit of Solaris, the original version. And... Uh, I don't know that there's a more radical take on a popular property in the history of Hollywood. Like, yeah. I don't know. Like, I'm trying to think. Like, you can say they've done some kind of out there things with the Batman property over the years, but like, nothing that is like this. Like, this is almost anti audience pleasing, <laughs> which I, I, I'm astonished by, but it's something that's incredibly rare for a property that is popular. They might do it with something that is more niche and kind of like more of a curiosity of like, let's just do a radical retake on this. But Star Trek, like it was incredibly popular in syndication so much so they were going to bring it back to TV for phase two. The fact that this was what they decided to do instead and present this to the world is fascinating to me. Well, it also shows you how much uh, Gene Roddenberry had spent the last 10 years just really kind of believing his own hype. And these were, I mean, the fact that he kind of did away with the spirit of the original with this script and uh, this film that he produced, it's interesting. And this is very much kind of from the vision of uh, of uh, Robert Wise, as well as um, we need to give a big shout out to Douglas Turnbull, who uh, was the visual effects uh, supervisor, as they called him back then, photographic effects. But... Um, I, I, I'm generally impressed, but yeah, Cam, this, it does away with what you'd ever expect from a Star Trek film. Not necessarily always for the better, but I'm glad that it will at least get something in the uh, the film franchise canon that would kind of really, it, it, it's, it, it's a bit of a unicorn, I, I'll say that. It really is, because it takes some elements of original series. I think of like Corbomite Maneuver, and you have Kirk kind of bluffing with the V'ger probe here and you've got the V'ger probe is very clearly modeled on a lot of the you know actresses they would have on the original series playing these aliens in very seductive wardrobe like there's a lot of TOS elements but filtered through an entirely different sensibility and I find that really fascinating but I want to ask you you I believe had never seen the director's cut before right correct and what did you think of some of the material that found its way back in did anything jump out to you I guess is the question the answer is no, despite the fact that there are, what, like 17, 18 minutes added onto this? Um, I don't think it's that much. Um, I know I know they took footage out as well with some of the lead up to the, you know, going through V'ger's antechambers and things like that. But the material that most jumps out to me is um, the sequence where uh, Chekhov burns his hands and Ilya runs over and is using basically healing abilities on him, which is something that was cut out of the theatrical. Um... And then there's actually a lot more chapel in this movie. She just has more dialogue and shows up in more scenes. And then lastly is um, Spock crying at the console, talking about how he feels like V'ger is his brother. Yeah, I, I, it's once you run down those moments, they, they do pop out to me now. But while I watched it, I kind of, my assumption is like they were just doing more V'ger anti-chamber uh, sequences to uh, kind of uh, have our eyes feasting on that. Yeah, yeah. I, I know that, like, for me, the added material actually tightens up some of the connections between the Spock and V'ger character, where that's kind of one of the grand thematic elements of the Spock character in this movie. And I think they really kind of tighten that up by adding those scenes back in where you have Spock actually commenting on things. And also talking about more of the importance of emotion. And it made me think a lot about Discovery Season 4 and how it was all about using emotion to communicate with uh, Species 10C. And I feel like they did a better job of that here, you know, underlining how human emotion is so crucial in merging with V'ger and seeing beyond the logic, which is something that Spock's grappling with. I, I literally have my in my notes, Cam, uh, DSC S4, you know, Discovery Season 4, equals... The motion picture stretch out over 13 hours. Yes, pretty much, yeah. <laughs> and you thought the motion picture felt long. Yeah, I mean, I think I would have been more tolerant if they'd gone through more antechambers in uh, yeah. Discovery. Cam, I'm, okay, like, I, I'm really immature, but, like, uh, whenever they said, and the orifice is closed, and it'd be like a mm -hmm. shot to the door, I was just like, yeah, those are buttholes. Come on, like, that's, <laughs> that's what they are, people. Let's just be honest. 
Isn't it amazing, though, to imagine a time where they would put that on screen, write that dialogue, and portray it with that level of seriousness? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I know what my next cosplay is going to be at the Star Trek uh, convention. I'm going as a closed orifice. <laughs> I, uh, yes, I enjoyed the hell out of revisiting this. And I, I think after watching this 4K upgrade, which I can't wait to buy the um, the, the 4K Blu-ray of um, in September, I believe it's coming out, but... I think this will be the definitive way to watch the motion picture going forward because while I really enjoyed watching the theatrical on the um, 4K, I don't think the transfer is quite as good, which plays a huge role in me pre uh, preferring to just go with this version in the future. But also, for me, the added footage does make a bit of a difference in just tightening up the themes, which I think are a little muddy in the uh, theatrical. I'm just looking for It'll happen inevitably. I just don't have any guesses as to when that we'll get like kind of a, a theatrical release you know i'm not saying like a wide one but like maybe at a, a film festival or something like that in which you're actually able to watch this in a theater which to me would just be even more amazing than what we got here and like you and i have both uh like pretty big tvs uh but it just it's not the same as going into a theater no it's one of those movies like um 2001 a space odyssey even like um the bond movie thunderball which has a lot of underwater footage um and at a very slow pace it's like movies like this demand to be seen on the big screen because you really do get immersed in sort of the vibe and the visuals of them in a way that's almost impossible at home because you're sitting there at home oh your phone just went off oh who texted me oh you've got a dog that's barking or whatever like something's always going to distract you whereas when you're in the theater watching these types of movies I just find it makes a huge difference. And I would hope that they would put this transfer into theaters. It's too incredible to just, you know, have people watch it at home. Oh, I, I am Cam, I can attest to that. Like I've seen you and dogs are barking outside and you run up to the window and you press your <laughs> nose up against it. And then and you start yelping back. It's, it's it is distracting. One of the great things was that I did the uh, screen to screen um, for this movie, running it off the app to my TV and uh, well, uh that, that that's that's not accurate it's uh you're, you're casting it within the same uh network so it's not as if it's like directly transferring from your uh app to your tv but uh, uh please go go on there well because of that i couldn't use my phone for the two plus hours so that was very nice it uh, um, took away that uh, distraction you can use your phone uh no because well, i actually did screen to screen on the iphone oh yikes uh <laughs> why um i don't know it was very simple to do it but looked the, beautiful it, the image quality would be less than what you get from casting it directly um it, i don't know it looked pretty astonishing i had zero problems with it uh yeah but it probably would not have looked as good as i would have seen it uh though yeah i maybe i yeah i no, guess so no no not, um, not, not maybe uh certainly okay um yeah just uh i'll show you uh, you and i were gonna hang out soon i'll show you how to cast things uh and uh it definitely is kind of a big difference um uh when you're doing it off of your app but uh yeah and yet nonetheless it still looked better than the disc for the motion picture theatrical cut to me <laughs> there you go boom yeah no complaints all right so cam uh we'll be back with more picard in la um next week i guess Mm. Uh, sure um <laughs> yeah oh i had a i had a quick question for you you were you know we talked about obviously the motion picture this was a big deal for people to see finally in 4k it finally came out the wrath of khan director's cut is on the 4k set that came out previously do you think they'll ever do any sort of new release of the star trek 6th extended cut probably not that would be my yeah guess you know uh i could be wrong but i just i wonder if the economics of it makes sense although um look if paramount plus is trying to pull in new subscribers they're doing they're investing that with uh, the motion picture a anything's possible however i like to deal in probabilities and i find this one to be uh, less probable and also like nicholas meyer that wasn't his cut of the movie and i almost wonder if it's just like uh, just to like have the positive relationship going forward they just won't put it out because it wasn't on the blu-rays or anything yeah, um, my suspicion is they'll probably uh, like I, I like that was the cut that I grew up watching because that's what I had on video cassette. I'm okay with it uh, just existing as it is, uh, you know, with the uh, upgraded image quality moving forward. 
Okay, so you can, of course, leave a review for us wherever you get your podcasts. We very much appreciate it. And it helps with placements on rankings on all of these search functions on iTunes and Spotify and all the various uh, platforms. And you can also find us on the Twitter. I'm at Cam. V is in V'ger's Orifice, Smith. And you can find me at Reportin. That's R-E-P as in you don't need to pronounce the P in the word Q. O-R-T-O-N. Okay, so until next time, the arena is closed. Transfer complete.